Welcome back to another episode of Reading for a Change, a podcast from Moody Publishers where we take an inside look at the books transforming our lives and shaping the world. I'm your host, Drew Dick, and my guest today is Jim Wilder. He's an author, and I get this, a neurotheologian. I'm guessing uh, that title, neurotheologian, might be new to you. It certainly was for me, although I have to say, it sounds like something I might like add to my Twitter bio just to sound mysterious and cool, uh, but it would be a lie if I did it, but not for our guest, Jim. He really is a neurotheologian. Jim has a PhD in clinical psychology and an MA in theology. He's been training leaders and counselors for over 40 years, and he is the author of many books, including the latest one, which we're going to be talking about, uh, which he co-authored with uh, Michael Hendricks, The Other Side of Church, Christian Community, Brain Science, and Overcoming Spiritual Stagnation. Jim, welcome to the podcast. It's great to be with you, and I hate to start out with a correction, but uh, it's the other half of church, not the other side of church. Oh, the other and I even wrote it down wrong. Yeah, <laughs> and, I and made I that no, mistake myself. <laughs> and I have no excuse because I got the book right here in front of me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. Thank you. And oh, by the way, too, am I saying um, uh, is it Michael Hendricks or Mikkel Hendricks? It's, it's Michael. He it's says Michael. you have to ask his parents why they spelled it that way. <laughs> That's yes. right. It's spelled a little differently. It's M I C H E L. So I kind of wondered made a minor that. career of changing the spelling on his name when it gets misspelled. Right. So, the way it sounds like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I took a stab at it, and I guess I was right. You um, so my first question for you uh, is simply this. What the heck is a neurotheologian? Well, um, when I first heard the term, uh, there were already uh, like 2,000 websites that were using it. And uh, the field is actually quite old, it goes back to about the year 300 when uh, Bishop uh, of Emesa wrote a book on the brain and how that inter interfaced with uh, theology, figuring that God created the brain in order to help mm -hmm. us to become who he meant us to be. And so by studying the brain, we should be able to have some idea of, of what God has in mind. So neurotheology looks at the intersection between what is true about the physical brain that's been created by God and what theology tells us about how that brain should be trained. Uh, and when those two things really line up, it's, uh, you know, those are the high points of, of neurotheology. And I was trained in seminary by one of the older ones, uh, um, who had actually been uh, designed the original brainwave research and stuff like that, uh, found, sort of founding the more modern uh, phase of the field. Wow. Okay, that's really surprising that, it, first of all, that someone like 1,700 years ago was <laughs> talking about the brain and its relation to the spiritual life. Um, and of course, yes, we've discovered a whole bunch more, especially in recent years. I think most people have heard of or know about the right brain, left brain split, right? Um, but what are some common myths uh, that people have regarding the right brain, left brain, and what might they not know? Yeah, well, the the general split between the two brains is uh, that, you know, you've got the creative people on the right brain, 
And so even the cover of the book there, if you look at it, there's all this bright color on the right side of the brain. And the other side looks kind of drab and dull. Uh, so even our own book is working <laughs> that that uh, mistaken identity. Uh, the the right brain is actually the relational side, and I, up until 1990s, they hadn't really even developed any ways to test what it did, because hmm. it runs faster than conscious thought. So conscious thought being slower on the left side. Um, Never could catch up with it. And so there's things like, for instance, you know who you are? You, you know who you are? Yeah. Do you, know who, <laughs> do you know who you are? I like to think so. Yeah. So you wake up knowing who you are? That's a good question. I, I'm pretty bad in the morning, but. <laughs> Even so, you don't uh, usually have to figure that out in any way, right? Right. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so we always assumed the brain knows who we are, but actually it figures it out six times per second. Hmm. It's just that conscious thought can only catch up with it five times per second. And so we think we always know these things, like who we are and where we are and what's going on. Once in a while, we'll get disoriented about where we are. But the, the right hemisphere has this characteristic that it cannot be focused. It takes in the whole big picture at once. And uh, so that's why creative people um, have been associated with the right hemisphere because they're, they're seeing things in the big picture that other people aren't seeing. And then people who focus down on detail, uh, that's what the conscious mind does very well. And then those two things are kind of split between the left and right brain. Hmm. Okay. That's fascinating. Especially the idea that the brain has to constantly reorient itself and remember mm -hmm. basic things like who you are, where you are. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's and so actually, it sounds like we need both though, obviously. It's asking the question, what is it like me and my people to do in this one-sixth of a second? And so we're, we're always figuring out who we are in reference to how do we handle, you know, our current experience. And it's very important to be able to do that. And when we're not quite sure, it's good to be able to drill down on the detail. And that's what we use our conscious mind for. Uh, so I think one of the most amazing statements to me is the conscious mind on the left side is incapable of grasping reality. It can only grasp a fraction of reality at a time. Hmm. And so since we put a lot of our Christianity in, into this left hemisphere, that can only see a piece at a time. Uh, you know, we get to be a little bit when it comes to theology, like uh, the, all the blind men studying the elephant. Mm -hmm. It's whatever we've focused down on is what we're able to see of it at a time. And so, um, the other, the bigger picture is really hard to articulate. It includes things that we kind of know, um, but um, we're not quite sure how we know them. And in fact, that part of my writing process often is, uh, you know, I know I want to say something and do something, and it's about this, but exactly how I'm going to say it and how I'm going to word it and, mm. and where I'm going to go with it and what metaphors will I pick out, that you know, all those details. You can kind of see how the two hemispheres are already working with each other. One's got this big idea like, oh, I want to do this. Now, how am I actually going to do that? Now, we've got to focus down on the detail. And uh, if you do both well, you know, uh, the project works. Right. And you definitely need both sides to do something like writing. Uh, <laughs> can you compare uh, for us what you call in the book right brain Christianity versus left brain Christianity? You've already alluded to it a little bit. And why do we need both to build a healthy church community? Yeah, 
Well, this came out of my uh, 40-year process of the group that I was with trying to figure out why is Christianity, especially in the West, been so um, difficult or so restricted in how much they can change character. So we all know we're supposed to love our enemies. We all know we're supposed to, uh, uh, you know, get along with their family. All we know we're supposed to love and praise God. We all know we're not supposed to be losing our temperature tempers. Uh, but um, why is it that knowing all these things, and, and even worse, some of the people that, you know, have been great Christian leaders who really articulated the truth extremely well, blow up spectacularly afterwards and, and say like. Why, why does that happen? Hmm. Um, so what we've discovered is that the part of the brain that forms character is on the right side of the brain. And because the brain sort of runs, you know, the faster side runs first, mm -hmm. our ideas, anytime they get back into the brain, uh, the identity side of the brain are always uh, – a day late and a dollar short. <laughs> so it's after I've already reacted with bad character that my my conscious mind says, you know, you're not really supposed to say that to your wife or child or neighbor or who, fellow uh, driver on the freeway or something like that. Uh, so we might catch it in time to stop it from coming out of our mouth, but it's already happened in our character. Right. And Jesus, if he's going to change character, should have a spontaneous, you know, our first reaction should be more Jesus-like. Uh, how do we actually do that? And that's formed in nonverbal ways by uh, loving attachments to people. That's actually what we learn from the brain formation, that it's, it's who we're attached to, who we love in an attachment kind of way that changes our character much more than what we believe. So... To have a church in which we actually starting to have the character that looks like Jesus, we actually have to be working out the part of the brain that's attachment and nonverbal um, rather than the one that um, is thinking and believing. So even when we talk about church, we talk about Christians as other what believers, right? Right. Not other lovers. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. See, not those who, who love God. And, and yet, when you go back to Scripture now, which I do as a neurotheologian, you start saying, um, you know, what is it that Scripture tells us is most important? All of a sudden, loving God and loving your neighbor. And on the, in the upper room, Jesus says, you know, uh, to the disciples who are shocked to hear it, from now on, the Father and I are only going to reveal ourselves to those who love us. Mm. Not to those who believe, but to those who love us. Of course, when you love, you believe, right? Right. But when you believe, you don't always love. <laughs> right. Yeah, man, that is so good. And it makes so much sense uh, of my experience anyway, because I've always had this assumption that as you grow in knowledge, right, you, you study about God mm -hmm. and study theology, that there's going to be some corresponding growth in your sanctification, your spiritual life. Like you said in those, you know, you're not going to be as as quick to to get angry or, or to mm -hmm. be selfish. Or and and as we know, I think most of us who've you know been Christians long enough, you know, those things don't always track together, and it's yeah. this enduring mystery. Uh, but what you're talking about just makes a lot of sense uh, out of it because it's not that you don't really believe these things often, 
yeah, but, we do. but somehow your, your life just doesn't follow. I often say that my, my stomach is one of the last places to come to faith. You know, I know that I should be trusting God and my stomach still goes when I see something threatening coming along. So how do I get it, you know, in, into all of me? N.T. Wright had an interesting article that he published, I think, in February of this year, in which he talked about knowing um, knowledge that can only be gained by love. And mm -hmm. I thought that was an interesting idea. It wasn't based on any kind of brain science, just straight up theology, that, that knowing the yada that the Hebrew talks about is a very relational connection done by who we love. And, and really in the brain, that's a mutual mind state. We're able to sort of think along with somebody. Uh, and if you've been, you know, uh, married for a while, you know what it's like, you know exactly what your partner is thinking right now. Um, I remember every night at dinner, my parents would have a fight, same fight every night. And my brother and I would look at each other and we'd say, does not my dad understand what my mom's thinking and is going to say? And does not my mom understand what my dad is thinking and he's going to say? And they're going to have the same, <laughs> same argument every night. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, that's, yeah, that, that's knowing. It's knowing by relationship, not, no one explained it to us, but we knew. Yes. Man, okay, that's a lot to chew on. And now you got me wondering if my stomach is even saved because <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's always asking for Oreos and Doritos. So, um, okay, but here's the thing, okay, because and, and I'm sure you've gotten this objection. Um, it can sound though like you're trying to downplay the spiritual disciplines that are associated with left brain activities, reading scripture, learning theology. Um, what, what do you say to that? Well, um, even within the spiritual formation school, um, there is the uh, there are two sides to spiritual life. One is the crucifixion, and the other is the vivification. Mm -hmm. So, the spiritual disciplines primarily are good at pulling weeds, at taking things out of our way. That, like, if I'm always um, uh, you know, on my computer and phone and everything like that, I'm leaving no room whatsoever for God to, you know, my brain to even be aware of God. So fasting, uh, solitude, study, all of those things make room for encounters with God. They, they mm. pull the weeds. But they're not actually the things that build character. So even if you go back to some of the classics in, in uh, history like uh, St. Teresa of Avila, she was very light on the ascetic side, the discipline side, and very strong on the getting to know and love God side. Mm. Go back to St. Clair a thousand years back, probably the first uh, woman to write uh, a Christian book. Um, and so her point was that you're formed or, or you're shaped by your love. And so we should really be learning to love God. So again, uh, there, there is sort of a conflict be, between the two. If you just work disciplines, um, you make room for God, um, but it does not, uh, uh, it, it doesn't directly focus us on what we're trying to achieve. Mm -hmm. Are we trying to achieve more solitude? Dallas Willard, for instance, said that the, there's in them, in and of themselves, the spiritual disciplines have no spiritual value. 
Hmm. That's a state, quite a statement. Yeah. Yeah. They create room for what is spiritually valuable. They, they, they do what we cannot do directly, um, which is move right into spiritual value. So the, I think that's, you know, there's always going to be a struggle with us as human beings, but to think that becoming more and more disciplined alone makes us love God, I think, um, is a mistake. And then to think if we're just going to go around trying to love God without, um, you know, using the, the tools he's given us to know how he thinks or he thinks and speaks, you know, those are all left hemisphere stuff, mm-hmm. but he also loves. Mm. So we have to, you know, that's why the whole brain Christian idea um, is, you know, really what we're aiming for. You, yes. you don't get anywhere by believing lies, but right. believing truth alone is only half the picture. Yeah, no, I think that's right on. And, and if you, if you doubt that um, you need more than spiritual disciplines, I mean, just look at the Pharisees, right? They were great at fasting. They were great at at memorizing Mm -hmm. God's word. Uh, Mm -hmm. So, um, but, but they totally missed the boat. Uh, That's awesome. Can you touch on the role of joy in spiritual formation? And also how does joy work within discipleship? Yeah, well, uh, now you're getting to the four um, different soils that we call them, the four different things you need. Yeah, to lay grow. those out too. That was really helpful. Yeah, to in the in the book there. So, in the other half of church, we wanted to look at what made things grow, and what we first discovered about the brain was that it grew in response to joy. So, your actual physical brain, about a third of it, grows. Uh, directly in proportion to how much joy it receives. And for the brain, joy is relational. Someone's glad to be with me. Mm. Uh, they enjoy me. They love me. They they are a source of life to me. You know, they nurture me. Those kind of things, is, that's all joy. And so uh, one of the things I thought immediately when I heard the brain science was, well, wow, that's very interesting. The joy is so powerful for the brain. I wonder if it has anything to do with a, being a Christian. Because uh, by that point, I was an ordained minister. I grew up, my parents were missionaries. I'd been to, you can't think how many churches and how many locations and how many denominations. I'd always heard of joy kind of like uh, uh, dessert. You know, <laughs> if everything is going well, maybe you get some joy. Uh, don't expect it to last too much, except for some kind of spiritual joy that only God can give. We're not quite sure how that feels, but whatever it is, is better than being miserable. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so there, there's this confusion. But if it's relational, you know, then it means what makes us really happy is when God is with us. To mm. face problems in the world and have to face them alone, ooh, that's miserable. But when God is with us, ah, we're really glad that he's there. Is This kind of joy uh, is uh, what causes us to attach to people. So. If if attachment love is what um, forms character, it forms in response to joy. So it's, it's sort of like joy. If you're thinking of a garden, joy is like the water you put on it. One way of looking at it, without water, nothing much grows there. Hmm. Uh, and so joy is one of the very important ingredients. We have to be people who are actually glad to be together. And again, the problem with the modern Western church is that we barely know most people. Right. Certainly building being glad to be together is rarely the point of 
of church and even small groups. I've talked to lots of small group leaders and they say, you know what, uh, we always disband our group after about two years and have them form new ones because by that point, people's problems are coming out. They're not getting along together. So that, you know, there's this initial little burst of joy and we've got to keep splitting people up so that we don't have our groups falling apart on us. Once in a while, a group works, uh, but we can't really count on it. So how do we build joy? wasn't part of the formula it was how do we build biblical knowledge but biblical knowledge without joy doesn't uh doesn't produce really lasting relationships yeah oh wow that's and i think maybe this is just the kind of particular evangelical subculture in which i was raised but joy is a little suspect right it's like if you if you're too happy uh certainly if you're seeking joy uh then, then maybe you're, you're, you're compromising somehow, because if you're living a good Christian life, of course, you're getting some persecution and, and, and you might want to be a little more dour. Uh, but that's mm-hmm. a fascinating idea that joy is, is the water or the, you know, whatever metaphor you want that actually creates the growth that that's brand new to me. Yeah. And also because we think of joy only as a euphoric experience, as opposed to being glad to be together. Right. Uh, you know, we don't really quite grasp the strength the strength of it. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, we were getting ready to go on a trip to the Netherlands a few years back, and all of a sudden, I heard my wife, who was upstairs, she said it, she called out Jim, and there was something in her voice that made me say, "Just drop everything and go up there to find out what was going on." And in fact, she'd fallen, broken her leg; it was Ooh. bending in a direction that legs aren't supposed to go. Yikes. Uh, and immediately when I got up there, I was glad I was there. I was, and she looked at me like, Oh, I'm so glad you were home and you're there. Right. Yeah, no That was a very painful and very miserable experience. And it led to, uh, what five surgeries, uh, oh. cause she not only hurt that, but uh, ended up both hips and spine and both shoulders said all that stuff. But every time I'm with her during those difficult times, it's deeply meaningful. She's glad I'm there. I can look at it in her eyes, even though she might be crying. Mm. So when we look at joy that way, we realize it's not just, you know, yippity skippity. Right. Although, you know, you really don't want to fall in love with somebody without a little yippity skippity, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah. So we won't discount that. But joy goes, you know, it's you want the kind of relationship where no matter what happens, we're still glad to be together. Uh, that's that's what the real joy is, and and at that point, uh, you're no longer looking at pleasures of this life, you know, the flesh and and all that sort of stuff that um, has been very, you know, for I think ever since Augustine, there's been reason to be suspicious about anybody who's just enjoying life and and uh, uh, <laughs> looks a little too happy to be Christian. <laughs> That's right. We might give them a little bit of side eye. Um, So this is a big question, but okay. So if if we as Christians get this and we start, you know, cultivating uh, the spirituality of our right brain more uh, in, and really enjoying being together, uh, what does full brained Christianity look like to you? Well, uh, for one thing we would be, um, Joyful when we're together, we'd be we'd be building joy. 
we would be forming lasting attachments so that uh, uh, our relationships really start to develop an eternal character to them. Um, we would be developing what, instead of just having churches, we would be developing the people of God. So uh, we're a people who are uh, in the world and with each other and with God because we're we're really a different sort of folks and we're quite intent on helping each other become that, which leads to probably one of the more difficult uh, aspects, again, for a Western mind is we would begin to cor- correct one another. Mm. Uh, when we forgot how to act like the people of God, because interestingly, at age 12, your brain switches over from your individual survival to your group identity being uh, more important than your own survival. So up mm. until 12, it's all about me. From 12 on, it's about my people. So I will die uh, doing something that will help my people survive. And so if you want to develop a group identity, really that's the part that changes your character after age 12. So you can say to each other, you know, well, yeah, I know how to lose my temper, but we're not a people who handle it that way. Here, let me show you by example uh, how, I, how I handle these things in a way that's more pleasing to God and to one another. And those are the things that we generally hide from each other. So making those corrections has to be part of this culture when we're together. Um, and, you know, when those ingredients are, are running, then we're actually actively helping each other become who God meant us to be. And when we have a problem, instead of keeping it out of our church or fellowship or hiding it, we would be running right to that group and saying, okay, I'm, I, I, I forget who God made me to be right here, or I never learned. So can you help me discover how God wants me to act in this area of our life. For that, you have to have a pretty secure attachment. Otherwise, we're all quite sure that if you see what's wrong with me, you're going to reject me. Yes. Yeah, and it's a, it's a major challenge to do that kind of thing, especially mm-hmm. in our North American context, right, that is yes. so individualistic, that is so, hey, listen, you're not going to tell me what to do. Uh, yeah. And, of course, and I so here's move on. One yeah. last little detail on that one. Uh, and that is the best way to do that is by being a group that's practicing loving your enemies. Ooh. So, see, because loving your enemy actually tests uh, the enemy mode in your brain that's the one that causes us all of our trouble. So if we would learn to G- get Jesus in when other people feel like an enemy, well, we wouldn't be getting divorced for one thing. We wouldn't be having these these big fights. We wouldn't. Uh, we begin to say, you know, uh, sure, people can feel like an enemy, but that's also another one of God's creations, another one of his children. Mm-hmm. We don't know for sure which ones will be saved, but uh, we want to bring uh, them to be aware of God's presence as I've been learning to do it. If we practice that together, it actually develops the character of Christ. So where you see people in the world whose character is changing, we often think it's persecution doing it. Mm-hmm. No, it's not persecution. It's actually learning to love your enemies, which has become part of their group identity. When you do that, you are going to become a different people as a group. Wow. No, you're right. That that is absolutely fascinating. Um, And it's so hard. (laughs) And especially, it's a good word too, right, for our our cultural moment right now, where we're so, everything's gotten so politicized, so polarized, that, and we're encouraged by a thousand voices, including social media and cable news, to essentially hate our enemy. 
Right. Um, that is a, a deeply countercultural message and yet one we really need to hear. Uh, listeners, if you have benefited from this conversation like I have, I want to encourage you right now to head over to moodypublishers.com and grab a copy of Jim's book. I started reading this book. I'll be honest because I was like, oh, I got this interview coming up, right? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to talk to Jim. I want to read this book. And it totally sucked me in. It is just absolutely fascinating. Again, the title is The Other Half of Church, uh, Christian yeah. Community. Did I get that right that yeah. time? Yeah. Because yeah. <laughs> I, I said the other side at the outset. Right. The Other Half of Church, Christian Community, Brain Science, and Overcoming Spiritual Stagnation. Uh, if you're a leader, you definitely need to grab a copy of this. Just understand how better to lead people in their spiritual growth. Uh, or even if you're a layperson who feels frustrated in your spiritual life, you need this book. It's 20% off right now. Uh, again, the other half of church, Christian community, brain science, and overcoming spiritual stagnation. Again, head over to moodypublishers.com to receive a 20% discount today. Jim, the last section that we have here is one we call the writing life. And this is where I've been asking authors um, about the writing process. And what I was curious about with you, and you, you touched on this briefly already, so maybe you just want to expand on that. But is there anything that, that you, um, because of your understanding of the brain, that helps you when it comes to writing? Um, yeah, there's a, there's a couple of things that uh, really uh, help me along the way. You know, of course, the idea that I know more than I can put into words <laughs> right. uh, uh, turns out to be the basis for good science. The people who do good science sort of intuitively know what experiment they should run next because they they sense they know what's going on. They just aren't quite sure quite how it works. Mm. And so when you work in that that zone of, uh, you know, I think I know something here, um, but I haven't figured out quite how to explain it, it adds a whole lot of creativity to the process. I will sometimes sit down and, and write you know, essentially the first draft of a chapter. Uh, as fast as I can type, and as things are coming out, I'm going, that sounds really interesting. I'm going to have to go back and think about that. Uh, so um, the the left brain focus uh, is putting into words things that it, it doesn't fully understand, and that, that can be very good for creativity. But one of the other writing processes that I keep in mind is that the a uh, long-term memory in the brain lasts about 90 days. So up till 90 days, when I write something, I can remember what I meant when I was writing it. Hmm. So inevitably in my writing process, I will finish, you know, whatever I think the book or the article is. I'll put it on the shelf for at least 90 days and then come back. Because at the end of 90 days, I won't remember what I meant when I wrote it. And I look at my own writing and go, what am I talking about? <laughs> if I read it sooner, my brain fills in. I know what I'm talking about because I remember saying or writing that. And so the last process of my writing is always to put it in the, uh, on the shelf, wait 90 days, come back and look at it and go, oh, well, I have no idea where that was actually going. It doesn't really make sense. And then, you know, I can then rework it. I'll figure it out eventually what I was trying to say uh, and put it in a way that makes it much more understandable for people. Yeah. Uh, and 
you know, within that context, uh, people who only know one language always assume uh, that meaning comes from words, but in the brain it's the other way around. We yeah. have meaning looking for words. Huh. And so when I'm working with my editors uh, and they don't like the way my sentences or my paragraph, whatever's written, I realize they're working from the words back trying to find meaning. Uh, and if they're having trouble, I really need to help them. Uh, not because I have any trouble finding the meaning, but because they've given me another example of why those words don't lead them back to the meaning I was trying, trying to find. And I think what makes authors interesting is they find peculiar ways to use words to evoke meanings that you wouldn't otherwise go to. Yeah. yeah that's kind of fun. Yeah, no, that's well said. <laughs> yeah. And those, those, those nasty editors, they're just jerks. They're, I, well, <laughs> I am an editor, so I'm, I'm <laughs> it's a confessional you know, of sorts. <laughs> it's kind of interesting for me that my first real experience of getting into enemy mode was the first encounter with one of my editors. You know, it's like, <laughs> oh, what are you saying? Cause they told me this is a really great book cut off. Um, about a third of it, and then add about a quarter more uh, uh, content, uh, but keep it to a you know that short length. Like, what are you trying to do? Drive me crazy? Right. Uh, uh, <laughs> it's like saying, hey, you know, I, I, your kids are okay. You got to get rid of one of them though, okay? yeah. and maybe get a different one. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Painful. Then I realized I had to get some uh, learning, some of that taking correction to help become the person I was meant to be. And uh, maybe uh, they know a little bit more about the kind of writer I should be than I, I knew. So yep. you've ended up being good friends with almost all of my editors. That's awesome. That's awesome. <laughs> well, we appreciate that. Trust me. Um, <laughs> when people are open to our input. Um yeah. This is awesome. Thank you again, Jim. I, we've cruised through our time, but this is fascinating stuff. There's so much more in the book. So, so I do encourage people to check it out. And, you know, when it comes to this topic of the brain and spirituality, there, I understand some of the pushback because some people are like, well, why do we need to study the brain in the first place? And the way I see it is, you know, that maxim, all truth is God's truth. So if God made us, he designed our brains. And so to me, it just makes sense that we would avail ourselves of that knowledge to better understand how we can grow, how we can cultivate joy, how we connect to each other, and ultimately how we glorify God. And that's precisely what this book enables us to do. Again, the other half of church, Christian community, brain science, and overcoming spiritual stagnation. If you've enjoyed this conversation, please uh, leave us a rating or review on Apple or Google Podcasts. Thank you so much for listening. And until next time, keep reading.